Good morning. <laughs> I am exercising <laughs> what one man said, a woman's prerogative, but we'll just call it a preacher's prerogative, and I, and I have changed my mind this morning. On what I was going to preach, we were in a series on famous people of the Bible, but through the course of the week, uh, found out there had been some questions and a little bit of confusion with our Gospel Reset series that we're doing in Sunday school, and just the confusion basically coming from, is there like a, a series of steps? What do you do first? What do you do second? You know, is there an ABC to this? How do we approach people? And so what I want to do is I completely change from famous people, the Bible, to go back and hit some things on evangelism. And it just occurred to me that when uh, the invitation hymn was announced, that that was the one I'd picked out for the other series. But that's okay. What if it were today when Jesus returned? Will we have done everything that we could do to help, help save people? And I don't know if there's any of us that can say, yeah, I've done everything I can do. Because we need to be sharing our faith. And so, with that in mind, we're shifting gears. Uh, three, four years ago, we went through a series on evangelism. How do we share our faith? What do we do? What are the priorities? And we talked about uh, how to build relationships with people, how to, how to sow the seed, how to water it and cultivate it, how to share our story with other people, how to reap the harvest. And so we're going to go back and hit some of those things to reinforce what is going on with our Gospel Reset. And it fits well with this time of the season when we're thinking about, you know, here in a couple weeks we're going to be celebrating the resurrection. Well, in order to share the Gospel, you have to know the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, so it's going to fit in fine with that. And so with that in mind, we're going to be talking evangelism some more and how to share our faith. You know, if you, if you go into the New Testament and you want to read a book about how people shared their faith, what book are you going to go to? Yeah, the book of Acts, because it's the book that tells how the church began and how the church spread, and how, how Christianity spread, how more and more people come to know about Jesus. So we're going to go to the book of Acts this morning. You can turn there. The beginnings of Christianity were really quite simple and quite humble. There were 11 disciples, a few women, which included Jesus' mother. Jesus recently converted half-brothers who come to believe in him after the resurrection. Added to that group, there was a wider, unorganized company of maybe some 500 others, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Very, very few of these people, if any, were notable citizens. The association was composed of one small ethnic minority within the Roman Empire, Jews, and this tiny group of believers were even considered outcasts by the vast majority of their own countrymen. 
They were located in Jerusalem, in the provincial Roman state of Judea, which far outside the, the main cultural centers of the day. And yet within 30 short years, these believers in Jesus would spread the faith with such urgency and such power that they would find representation in nearly every major metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. By the end of the second century A.D., the Christian church would become a closely organized, well-knit federation of communities extending from one end of the Mediterranean world to the other. And by the end of the fourth century, actually by the early portion of the fourth century, under Emperor Constantine, Christianity would be declared the official religion of all the lands. And it makes us ask the question, how did that happen? How was it done? How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge the paganism of its day and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? How'd that happen from such meager beginnings? And i got to tell you that historians and sociologists have been trying to answer that question for many years. But the answer is really not all that difficult because it happened by evangelism. That, that's a simple answer, okay, but it happened through evangelism. It happened through their sharing of the message about Jesus. And it can still happen today when God's people share the message about Jesus. Because the message about Jesus, which is the gospel, is called what by Paul in Romans 1.17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Stand up and tell me one thing more powerful than the power of God. You can't. And the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the power of God. That's why we should be unashamed to share it. It's powerful. It can still uh, bring success today through evangelism. So what made their evangelistic efforts so successful? That's what we want to find out so that we can imitate the dynamic nature of their faith and adopt the same spiritual priorities that they had that allowed for such a dramatic spread of those that became disciples of Jesus. So as the Gospel of Luke comes to an end, we see the apostles continually in the temple area praising God. And then Luke continues the story in the book of Acts in the first chapter because he also authored the book of Acts. And he gives us a brief description of Jesus' instructions to his disciples. In Acts 1, beginning in verse 3, he says, After his suffering... He showed himself to these men and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then down in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Now, we can hardly imagine the magnitude of the task that stretched out before that small group of men. By rising from the dead, Jesus had proven himself to be the divine Son of God and the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And then with all the authority of heaven and earth at his disposal, he has now informed these men that they would, beginning at Jerusalem and moving in ever-widening circles, that group of men would bear the responsibility of carrying his message to the very ends of the earth. And to further display his authority in these matters, the apostles then witnessed his ascension into heaven. Now think about this, folks. Think about if God appeared to 11 of us and told us, I'm putting in your hands the evangelization of the world. What would we do? Even today, with all the technology we have at hand. Think about this. If the task of evangelizing the world looks daunting, even impossible to us, imagine how it must have looked to them. They didn't have social media, cell phones, the internet, TV, radio, all those kind of things that, that we have that we can use today. They didn't have 2,000 years of Christian history and experience to draw on for support. They didn't have millions of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers stretching out across the globe. They didn't have any publishing houses or libraries that were filled with Christian literature and resources. All they had was Jesus. And that was enough. That was enough. They had their faith in the resurrected Jesus. That was enough. And then Jesus had added to that the promise that in a few days, the coming of the Holy Spirit would come upon their lives. Now, folks, it's of utmost importance to notice that to which the apostles gave their immediate attention after receiving the Great Commission, because I think we still miss this. And today's message, you may walk out of here disappointed, hoping that, okay, step one is I've got to do this. Well, you've got to do this, but you, this may not be the step that you, you're thinking about. But I think we still miss this. In our country today, we would expect the disciples to have returned from the Mount of Olives and continually devoted themselves to the formation of teams and committees and support groups and the like. All right? We, Peter, of course, would have been in charge, in charge of the pulpit committee. And, and um, Matthew probably would have been the logical choice for the finance committee. And, and the list would go on with all the committees that would be formed. And we do see them take the time to put forth a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1. But the text in Acts 1 is very clear that these men, along with a few others, made prayer their chief priority. Step one in evangelism, prayer. Without it, we fail. No sense sharing the message if we don't pray. That's number one. Acts 1 verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with its brothers. So before they appointed a committee, before they preached a sermon, before they made a single plan for exactly how they would carry out the Great Commission, they joined together constantly in prayer. Now just how long did that early extended prayer meeting last? 
Well, Acts 2 begins with the apostles together in one place on the day of Pentecost, which means that from the ascension of Jesus to the day of Pentecost, a 10-day stretch, these men were joined together constantly in prayer. The events that occurred at Pentecost describe in majestic fashion how God brought His church into existence. The Holy Spirit came with power upon the apostles, just like Jesus had promised. The miraculous signs of wind and fire would have brought the, to the immediate remembrance, probably, of how God's Spirit had worked and revealed itself in the past. They spoke in languages that they had never learned before. A large crowd gathered together, and Peter took the opportunity to preach the very first gospel message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In response, Luke records that about 3,000 people accepted the lordship of Jesus, and they responded through repentance and baptism. Then, Luke immediately describes after that what these first Christians did, this early Christian community. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves constantly to what? The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the beginning of the church began with a continual devotion to prayer. It ended with a continual devotion to prayer. God saw fit to pour out His Spirit upon the apostles and indwell through His Spirit those who responded to the gospel message. And so the church thus was born with a tremendous surge of evangelism within the attitude and atmosphere of prayer. And still today, if we don't continually devote ourselves to prayer, our evangelistic efforts will fail. No doubt about it. Now the second great evangelistic thrust recorded in Acts surrounds the story of Peter and John at the temple. Once again, Luke begins his story in Acts 3 and 4 here with an emphasis on the place of prayer in the lives of the apostles because he says, one day... Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. That's Acts 3 verse 1. And then the following story of Peter healing the crippled man is told there in Acts 3 and 4. Again, a large crowd gathered in the temple area because of the obvious miracle that occurred. And as on the day of Pentecost, Peter took the opportunity to proclaim a simple gospel message centering on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But Unlike the events that unfolded at Pentecost, Peter and John were arrested before they had an opportunity to finish all their teaching. But still, Luke records that as a result of their faithful witness to Christ, the number of men grew to about 5,000 who accepted the message of Jesus. Now, in Acts 4, the first 22 verses, that relates Peter and John's encounter with the Jewish authorities. After being threatened repeatedly, they were finally released. Luke chooses to end the account with Peter and John gathering with the whole church in an intensive time of prayer. And in Acts 4, down in verse 23, this is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. And notice what it says. When they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, here's their prayer. O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit 
through the mouth of our father David thy servant did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. So the church began its prayer by addressing God as the Sovereign Lord. The highest council in the land might stand against them, but they recognized they were serving the true Sovereign that was on their side. They were filled with praise as they acknowledged God's sovereignty in creation. I mean, if God could call the universe into existence by His very Word, then surely He could handle this present crisis for them. Following that, they acknowledged and praised that God was Lord through revelation because they quoted Scripture in Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. That's a messianic psalm, a psalm talking about the coming of the Messiah. What they were enduring had already been foretold by God in Scripture. It had been preached by the Jews for centuries. And these early Christians rejoiced in the fact that this persecution firmly established their place in God's ultimate plan. Their prayer then turned to recognizing God was the sovereign Lord of all of history. The great men of the ancient world, Herod and his dynasty, Pilate and the Roman power he represented, the events surrounding Jesus' death which seemed so out of control at the time, all of these things were under God's guidance, under God's power. And if God could guide and use the events that surrounded Calvary, surely he could work his purpose in their present predicament. And then finally, they made their petition to God in verses 29 and 30. The petition was threefold in nature. First, God was asked to consider their threats. They didn't ask God to remove the threats, nor did they ask God to judge the threats, simply that they would be in his mind. Second, God was asked to grant that the church be strengthened to speak God's word with boldness. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? And let me tell you, that's a prayer that I believe God will always grant when it's made in absolute sincerity. And then thirdly, God was asked to continue to extend his hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of his holy servant Jesus. The signs that had been performed had already brought large crowds together and uh, they just providing great harvest fields for the first two bold proclamations of the gospel. And always remember that the purpose of those miracles in the early church was to authenticate the message the apostles were preaching, proving the message was from God. They authenticated that message. Now get this, folks, because so often in today's church, the purpose of our prayers revolve around ourselves, our own personal peace 
and safety and comfort. Or we get, anytime a preacher says, that, says this, he risks being misunderstood. But too many times our prayer is simply a hospital report. Nothing wrong with praying for people that need our prayers physically and to intercede for them in prayer. But if that is the vast majority of our praying, something's wrong because there are other needs more important than physical needs. Right? Because the spiritual is far more important. And so we need to kind of evaluate our prayer lives. The purpose of this prayer in Acts 4 was to praise God and ask for the boldness and empowerment to carry out the Great Commission. And God answered their prayer. In verse, in, in verse 31 here, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's exactly what they prayed for. And God answered their prayer. So the second main evangelistic endeavor of the church recorded in Acts 3 and 4 began with an emphasis on prayer in the lives of Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And then it ended in an emphasis on prayer in the lives of the early church with the dramatic result of having, at this point, 5,000 conversions of men and the whole of the Jerusalem church boldly carrying out the Great Commission by sharing the good news about Jesus with everyone they could. But prayer surrounded it. You get to Acts chapter 6. Luke records for us another instance of difficulty within the life of the early church. Because the Hellenistic Hebrew, uh, the Jewish widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The apostles recognized that they couldn't neglect the ministry of the Word of God even for something as important as that. So they gave instructions for men to be chosen who could faithfully carry out that domestic ministry. And what Luke records next again shows the emphasis on prayer in the life of the early church. In Acts 6 verse 3. Luke says, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The result? So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So you notice after the apostles mentioned prayer, it says, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer preceded the ministry of the Word. Prayer preceded evangelism. Why? Because that's where it belongs. Prayer must always precede that. Devotion to prayer always precedes evangelism. And when the leadership gave themselves over to correct spiritual priorities, the result, again, was tremendous evangelism. Now, we can't go through the whole book of Acts this morning, you know, to, to do that, but let me just mention a few more. We should observe that Paul was praying when Ananias came to baptize him in Acts 9-11. Prayer surrounded both Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10 as the gospel came to the first Gentiles there, first Gentile convert, as the gospel spread out into the ends of the earth through the ministry of the apostle Paul, Prayer was continually mentioned by Luke. It's while the church was fasting and praying 
that the Holy Spirit set Saul and Barnabas apart for their first great evangelistic tour in Cyprus and Asia in Acts 13. As the gospel traveled to Europe for the very first time during Paul's second evangelistic tour, prayer was at the center of the outreach at Philippi because Lydia was converted at a place of prayer in Acts 16 verse 13. Paul and Silas were heading toward a place of prayer when they healed the demon-possessed girl in Acts 16, 16. And it was their singing and praying and when they were in the Philippian jail that evidently made a great impression on the Philippian jailer leading to his conversion in Acts 16, verse 25. You see, folks, when the church acted in the book of Acts, it's almost never without bathing what they did in prayer. And contemporary Christians... We today, maybe we wonder why we haven't done many great things for God. And I wonder if God would ask us, how much have you prayed? Really prayed. Polls have been taken, surveys have been taken, that find out that the average Christian, the average person that confesses to be a Christian, prays less than five minutes a day. For many, it's less than three minutes. How much have we prayed? And God might also ask, what have you prayed for? Or who have you prayed for? Simply treating prayer like some kind of celestial shopping list to be poured out on behalf of our own ease and comfort that's not going to accomplish the great plans of God. And you remember the early church didn't pray for ease. They didn't pray for comfort. They prayed for the boldness and the power to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus. And when that becomes the centerpiece of our prayer life, then God will act by blessing our evangelistic efforts. There's an old evangelist that said one time, Friend, don't expect a $1,000 answer to a 10-cent prayer. We need to pray. So the book of Acts begins with Jesus giving his apostles the commission to be witnesses throughout the world. The church in Acts prayed for boldness to carry out the Lord's instructions. And the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul in Rome carrying out the commission with the boldness made possible through prayer. Because Acts 28, verse 30 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we're going to spend three or four weeks dealing with evangelism. The sharing of our faith with others. Telling others the good news about Jesus. But, I had to start here. You can't leave prayer out. Because without prayer, we fail. All right? In the first century or the 21st century, the emphasis has to be the same. God's people must pray for the Lord to equip us to carry out the Great Commission. We have to pray. We must pray for God to give us the boldness and the power to tell others about Jesus. And so it's, it's just that simple statement, folks. If we fail to pray, we fail, period. So I want to encourage our elders to find ways to encourage us to pray about evangelism. I want to encourage our Sunday school teachers of all ages 
to find ways for each class to pray about evangelism. I want to encourage our Wednesday night prayer group to pray for more things than just the sick. We need to pray about evangelism. I want to encourage us to pray about evangelism even when we gather here to worship together. And I want to encourage every one of us to pray personally every day about evangelism. Asking God to give us the boldness and the power to tell others about Jesus. Because if we fail to pray, we fail. Period. That's the message. That's the starting point. And next Sunday we're going to talk about how to build relationships. Let's pray.